Welcome to the Ohio Humanities Podcast, where we engage real issues in real conversations with scholars and experts from across the state. In this series, Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters, we explore the topic of civic and electoral participation, using history and jurisprudence to illuminate contemporary issues. This is Ron Bryant. I am your host of Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters. Welcome to another Perfecting Democracy. I'm Ron Bryant, your host, and I'm with Barbara Palmer this time. Barbara is a best-selling, award-winning novelist whose work has been published in many countries. She's writing under a pen name of Barbara Palmer, inspired by the famous 17th century English courtesan and royal mistress. I like that. <laughs> yeah, when I moved to Cleveland, a friend of mine sent me this, you know, portrait of Barbara Palmer, Duchess of Cleveland. And um, yeah, she was pretty badass. And so I'm very happy to share, no relation at all, but okay. I'm very happy to share her name. <laughs> all right, her publication, Breaking the Political Glass Ceiling, Women in Congressional Elections, hits home to many women who are seeking to shatter the glass ceiling. Once again, welcome to Perfecting Democracy, Barb. Well, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be to be here. We're looking at the 2016 election, and many of us believe that women in presidential politics are now a new phenomenon. I don't believe so, but some people still do. So 50 years before women could even vote or even enter most restaurants without a male escort, Victoria Woodhull, an Ohio native, ran for president of the United States. I did not know that. Her campaign in 1872 set the stage for how women would change the face of politics for the next 150 years. Who is Miss Woodhall? What were her political platforms? And why has she not been elevated to a more prominent position in American history, Barb? Yeah, I love talking about Victoria Woodhull. So thank you for giving me another opportunity. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, she ran for president in 1872. Um, and I'm astonished that I didn't learn about this until well after I was out of grad school and was just happened to be doing some research on my own. Uh, but her entire life was just unconventional. She was born in 1838 in Homer, Ohio. She was one of 10 kids, but she also shared a house with about a dozen of her cousins. So this house was just like spilling over with children. And they were ex really, you know, grew up in extreme poverty. And so as a child, she worked all kinds of jobs to help support her family. Uh, she had to drop out of school at the age of 11. Um, and one of the things that she did to help support all of her siblings was she traveled around the country as a fortune teller who could speak with the spirits of the dead. Her dad had one of those old medicine shows with the carts um, that they would pull behind two horses and they would go around the, the country with you know him selling this like quack medicine and her having little fortune teller shows um, and but her but it was a very her parents were very abusive and at the age of 14 she got married just so she could get away from her parents and her family um, this was not a good match because she just basically married the first guy that she saw um, and he was an alcoholic. She eventually got divorced, which you can imagine was a pretty controversial move in the 19th century. And eventually she moved to New York and she was the first woman to open a bank on Wall Street and she became a stockbroker. She ran her own weekly newspaper and it turns out she was pretty good friends with John D. Rockefeller. He bankrolled a lot of her businesses and he claimed that she gave him really good stock tips. Um, so she was very actively involved in the suffrage movement. She had worked with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. 
And she was the first woman to testify before a congressional committee after the Civil War when Congress was passing, uh, was considering the passage of the 15th Amendment. So she was widely known in her day as a public speaker on women's rights, on financial freedom and independence for women, but also for sexual freedom. Um, as you can imagine, it's no surprise that uh, she thought marriage was a really bad deal for women. And she advocated what at the time was called free love, but today we would just consider, you know, like a normal relationship, being in control of who you married and when you married. And she had this quote that's attributed to her, even prostitutes got paid. Um, that was her comment on marriage and why marriage was just such a bad idea for women. It was worse than prostitution in her mind. So we do know that she did run for president in 1872, but she was only 33 years old, which made her constitutionally ineligible. According to the constitution, you have to be 35 years of age when you are sworn in. So technically, even if she had one, she wouldn't have been able to be president. And on election day, she was actually in jail. Oh, this, is an, yeah, this is an incredible story. Um, she was charged under this obscure New York state law, which eventually became the model for the Comstock Act passed by Congress. But there was this, this obscure law that said you, it made it um, illegal to send quote unquote obscene material through the mail. So she, which was the primary way she distributed her newspaper was through mail subscriptions. And so she published a story all of which was true. I mean, she had embellished it, but it was all factually true about the preacher Ward Beecher. Ward Beecher was Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother. And he was an incredibly popular and powerful preacher in the New York area. I guess today we, it was almost like he would have had like a mega church. Like that's how big his following was. And so he was really well known and you know part of the powers that be in New York. And he was married, but he was having an affair with his best friend's wife. And she got pregnant. And she had an abortion in the eighth month. I mean, it was, this story was just scandalous, even for by today's standards, pretty scandalous. So she published this story and Beecher didn't like it. Um, so he managed to get her arrested for, you know, publishing this story, claiming that it was obscene, not under libel or that it was false or anything like that, but that it was obscene. And she spent a couple months in jail, you know, and this is just, you know, this is just one story of her life. Um, I think she's finally getting her due. There's a lot of information about her on the web now. Um, there are several terrific biographies about her. I mention her every chance I can get, like opportunities like this. But she is a very complex person. Um, she made some bad choices. You know, a lot of what she did and said and stood for is still controversial today. But I do think she's finally getting the recognition that she deserves. Very interesting. You would have to say in today's terms, she kept it 100. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, wow. Never boring. My goodness. Since the 19th century, women have had a small share, although it's been a very large stake in political power in this country, that's for sure. For women, entry into the inner world of politics is still difficult. It's getting a little bit better, but it's still, you know, on snail's pace. What specific challenges have women in Ohio faced when it comes to winning elections in the state of Ohio? 
No, this is a terrific question. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure I have any really good answers, but I have some theories. I've lived in this state, I've lived in Cleveland for 10 years, and I'm still not considered a local or a real Clevelander. You know, and every state has a unique political culture and its own way of doing things. But Ohio is ranked 30th out of the 50 states for the proportion of women in our state legislature. We're in the bottom half. And in the 10 years that I have lived in Ohio, I'm just kind of shocked by how little things have changed for women. Um, and I think there's sort of, I think there's potentially two things that are, at least two things that are going on here. And first is that, you know, when you look at the role political parties play in candidate recruitment, Ohio's political parties, and I'm saying both parties here, just are not particularly interested in recruiting women. Now, way more women run as Democrats than Republicans, but the bottom line is that both parties at the state and the national level, I just don't think they really care that much about going after and recruiting women. There's lots of lip service, but not a lot of actual effort, which is actually a very bad strategy because we know that when women run, women win. They actually have higher success rates than men. Um, the problem is that women are less likely to run. But as a, so what we've seen happen is there are actually a lot of state level and national level organizations outside of parties that have been set up specifically to recruit women candidates. So for example, here in Ohio, we have the Joanne Davidson Ohio Leadership Institute that has trained Republican women and has been around for a really long time. Yes. And then we have, now we have the Matriot which is a nonpartisan PAC, which was created in 2017. So we now see these institutions outside traditional party structures in Ohio that are helping women run. Um, and to be honest, there would probably be even fewer women if these organizations didn't exist. So I think that's part of the issue. Um, another thing in Ohio that's kind of the X factor is term limits. One of the biggest hurdles for any new candidate, so whether you're trying to find more women to run, more young people, fewer lawyers, um, more people of color, you know, incumbency is a big hurdle because most incumbents are men. And incumbents have, whether you're talking about at the state or national level, incumbents win 95% of the time. And so when, in, when term limits were all the rage back in the 90s, there were a lot of scholars of women in politics and a lot of politicos and political junkies that thought, hey, you know, if we could term limits, we could see a real surge in the number of women running. That term limits, because you're getting rid of the power and the, the barrier of incumbency, would actually help women. But it has hasn't. And I think a lot of us are still kind of scratching our heads, like why in the states that did enact term limits for their state legislatures, why haven't we seen an increase in the number of women? It just hasn't panned out. You know, so those are some of the things that I think are, are somewhat unique to Ohio, but also, you know, women in Ohio face the same kinds of barriers and challenges that women across the country face. That's so very, very true. In your book, you describe the participating of women in the U.S. electoral arena is slowly evolving, but growing in fits and starts. Speaking of statewide offices in Ohio, we did not see women elected until 1970s when Gertrude Donahue was elected the first woman as state treasurer. So Ohio has seen the same fits and starts, the slow motion that characterizes the national narrative and what it has been about that specific movement during the 70s. How many women have served in statewide offices and what are their implications? 
Yeah. Um, so I'm going to actually go back in time a little bit before I, I get to that really good question. Um, in the early 20th century, Ohio was actually a national trendsetter when it came to women in politics. Ohio women were tremendously active in the women's suffrage and temperance movements in the early 20th century. Ohio was the fifth state to ratify the 19th Amendment. In 1922, six women were elected to the state legislature, which by today's standards is huge. Florence Allen was the first woman elected to a state Supreme Court in the nation, not just Ohio's first female state Supreme Court justice, but she was the first state Supreme Court justice in the country in 1922. In 1934, Florence Allen becomes the first female federal judge appointed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So back in the early 20th century, you know, Ohio was really on the leading edge of putting women in positions of power. And then, eh, like, it all kind of fizzles out. Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, during the 1970s, there's, you know, nothing really happens until the 1970s, which does match national trends. Um, you begin to see all across the country dramatic increases, you know, a, a, a an increase in the number of women running and women uh, winning in the 1970s. And I think this is related to the women's rights movement that was happening at the time and changing social expectations regarding women's roles. Part of the problem in Ohio is that because we've had so few women run for state house and especially state senate, it is particularly hard to see any kind of trends at all. And so it really is fits and starts. So getting to your more directly back to your question in terms of how many women have served in statewide offices. In Ohio, we have six statewide elected offices. We have state treasurer, secretary of state, state auditor, attorney general, lieutenant governor, and then finally governor. The reason why looking at these statewide offices is so important is because these other statewide offices are the springboard to the governor's mansion, not just in Ohio, but in a lot of other states as well. Now, Ohio has actually had a female governor for 11 days. So way back in 1994, Nancy Hollister became the state's first female lieutenant governor. Um, she was the running mate of Governor George Voinovich. In 1998, Voinovich ran for U.S. Senate, and he won. And so he had to resign as governor on December 31st. Hollister then became governor until Bob Taft, who had run for Voinovich's seat, was sworn in on January 11th. Yes. So we have Nancy as governor for 11 days. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so um, in addition to Hollister, only eight women have ever served in these offices in the history of the state. Now, we had a sort of a bright spot early in, you know, 2018 in the governor's race. We had an actual, like a remarkable number of women who announced they were running. We had four. Um, we had one Republican and three Democratic women who had declared they were running for governor. Um, unfortunately, um, you know, none of those women were successful and they dropped out. Take a step back and look at the big picture. In addition to Hollister, there have been 62 men who have served as Ohio's governor since statehood. 48 or three quarters of these men had prior experience in U.S. Congress or statewide office. Since 1956, there have been 11 men who have served as governor, and seven of them, two-thirds, had previously been elected to statewide office with lieutenant governor as the most common. Among the four men who had not served in statewide office since 1956, three had served in the U.S. House. So basically, you have one out of the 11 who didn't use these, uh, you know, these other offices as a springboard to be governor. For the past 50 years, the path to the Ohio governor's office has gone through another statewide office 
or through Congress. Now, another interesting factor here is that four of the last six lieutenant governors have been women. Um, but Mary Taylor was the first to actually run for governor in 2018, and she was unsuccessful. So we got two things going on here. The fact that only a handful of women have ever served in Congress from Ohio or in any statewide offices partially explains the lack of women who have been serious contenders for governor. And moreover, these rare but successful women, um, you know, have not been able to use those offices as a springboard to the governor's mansion like the men have. So I think this is part of the problem and why we haven't seen um, at least a woman, you know, making it to the governor's mansion in Columbus. We're listening to Perfecting Democracy and Why It Matters, Ohio Humanities, real conversations with my good friend, Barbara Palmer. We're gonna continue. Redistricting has been in the news lately and redistricting has increasingly protected incumbents as well as unintended consequences of shaping the opportunities for female candidates. The socioeconomic profile of districts that have elected women differ substantially from districts that elect men. Now I'm saying that because this question is really, really important. Ohio is set to redraw its districts in 2022, but gerrymandering has been a particularly serious issue in the state for many years. Talk about gerrymandering and what it does and how it impacts women who run for office. Every 10 years, we have to redraw our district lines. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but the Constitution actually mandates the census. And one of the most important things that the census does is figure out how many House members each state gets. And so every 10 years, we have to redraw those district lines based on um, how the population has shifted in and out of the state, but also within the state. And so Ohio is about to embark on a really interesting experiment in this next round of redistricting. It's, it's a kind of complicated, but I think it's important to take a minute to try to sort of figure out what's going on here. In Ohio in 2022, as a result of a referenda that was put on the ballot a couple of years ago that passed to try to reform this process, what we've got is we have two different systems for drawing district lines in Ohio. So state legislative districts, so districts for state senators and state house members are going to be drawn by a seven person commission. Um, and this is an increase from a five member commission that draw, redrew the lines back in uh, 2011. Um, so there's gonna be a seven person commission and it's gonna consist of the governor, the state auditor, the secretary of state, two democratic legislators and two Republican legislators. And, at and the two members of the minority party in the legislature must agree to the plan. So what that's going to mean uh, in 2021 is that the two Democrats are going to have to agree to that map. Um, and if they don't agree to the map, they're going to have to redraw the map in four years. So that's how our state legislative districts are going to be drawn. The real experiment is going to be with the way our U.S. House districts are drawn. This is a brand new method, and, and as far as I know, no other state has tried this. So congressional districts will be drawn by the state legislature, but have to pass with at least 50% of the minority party's vote. So right now, we have a, both the state House and the state Senate are controlled by Republicans, so that means that at least half of the Democrats in the state House and the state Senate also have to vote yes or on the map for U.S. House. As far as I know, no other state has tried it that way. And if less than 50% of the minority party agrees, then it goes to a seven-member commission and yada, yada, yada. Now, 
there aren't very many Democrats in either the Ohio State House or Senate. So it may be relatively easy to get half of them to agree without this new process having much of an impact at all. Um, I think it's kind of an open question exactly how this reform is going to work and if it will work. But Ohio is one of the most gerrymandered states in the nation. Um, and so what that means is that the political party that's in, in control pretty much has control over the map. This reform was intended to try to make this, the process a little bit fairer. So the impact of ger gerrymandering on women candidates um, works two ways. First of all, we know that gerrymandering, especially in Ohio, really protects incumbents. Um, and the vast majority of incumbents are men, as I mentioned before. So in Ohio, when you look at our 16 house districts, you know, when the incumbent runs, these districts are drawn so that incumbent will win. Or if the incumbent retires, the party of that incumbent is going to stay in power. It doesn't really matter who the candidate is. Um, and so in 2018, for example, and in 2020, we saw a spike in the number of women running for US House in Ohio. But because of gerrymandering, after the general election, there was no change in the number of women Ohio sent to the US House. The only women who won were the women who were incumbents. So what I'm saying is in these two election cycles, we saw huge spikes in the number of women running but they didn't win because the vast majority of them were running against incumbents and the incumbents are gonna win because of gerrymandering. And in fact, in 2020, all 16 US House incumbents ran and all 16 won. I have been studying congressional elections for 20 years and I've never seen anything like that before, ever in any state. So that just shows you how powerful incumbency is when it's combined with effective gerrymandering. Now, the other way that you um, that gerrymandering can affect women candidates, you alluded to in your question in that the profiles of districts where women candidates are successful are actually very different than the kinds of districts where men win. When you look at the demographics of these districts, it turns out that different kinds of districts are more likely to support female candidates um, than, ma than male candidates and vice versa. So for example, one of the things that my um, former co-author and I, um, Dennis Simon, explored was the impact of demographics on the success of women. So you know, when you, when you think traditionally about district profiles that elect Republicans and district profiles that elect Democrats, you know, we know that districts that are very rural are far more likely to elect a Republican, districts that are far more urban elect Democrats, districts that have higher incomes tend to elect Republicans, districts with lower incomes tend to elect Democrats, those kinds of things. And so we were really curious if those same kinds of patterns could be found when we were talking about electing men and women. And what we found is that women of both parties tended to be more successful in districts that were richer and had higher incomes, that had higher levels of education where you had more people who had gone to college. Uh, women were more successful in districts that were more urban and more diverse. And so there were things that cut across the party lines when it came to predicting the success of women. And so we came up with this term of gender mandering, the idea that you could manipulate, you know, if you're going to manipulate the lines to help your fellow partisans, you could also manipulate the lines to help female candidates. 
Now, I'm not saying that any state legislatures have actually done this, but we do know that in some states where there are more women, they've actually looked at this. Um, and when uh, district maps have gone before judges, one of the things that they've considered is its impact on female candidates and whether it advantages or disadvantages them. So yeah, I mean, gerrymandering is one of those things that, you know, we only talk about it every 10 years and then people kind of forget about it. But it's so important because you're really kind of baking in the rules and, you know, determining the success of, your, of a particular political party for years to come. And I'm not saying that only Republicans do this. When Democrats are in charge of the state legislature, they do it too. Um, it just so happens that we happen to have a Republican-controlled state legislature in Ohio, so they're going to, you know, draw the map to advantage their party. Um, and we are seeing a nationwide effort to try to reform these processes. Um, and like I said, we'll, we'll see this little experiment happening in Ohio in this next round of redistricting. Gender mandering. I like that. I'm going to use that out there. Great. After 2022, if there's uh, more equitable lines drawn in the state. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm terrible at making predictions. But, you know, if... And, and it's a big if, we do see some serious change. You know, we could potentially see a few more districts that are likely to elect Democrats. Right now, the state is heavily favored to, um, heavily gerrymandered to favored Republicans, far more than, you know, if you just look statewide at the number of people who consider themselves Republican, Independent, and Democrat, um, the map favors Republicans. And so if we had a map where that was drawn more equitably, we might see a few more Democrats being able to win some seats. But if nothing else, you know, I think it will just create districts that are more competitive. And I think that's just that's just better for everybody. That's just better for democracy. We've heard about the year of the woman nationally in 1922, 2018 was the year of the woman. In all honesty, what does that really mean? The year of the woman? Yeah. So this was a, a term that was coined by the media way back in 1992. And so that was kind of, that was the first year of the woman. And so it, this was a year when we saw a huge surge, a spike in the number of women running in an election cycle. When you look at the U.S. House, for example, going back to the 1970s, the typical increase, net increase in the number of women in the U.S. House was two or three. And then every once in a while, you'll see a, uh, an election cycle where the number just spikes. And 1992 was the first time that happened. And so 1992 was kind of the perfect storm for female candidates. You had an unusually high number of open seats. So you had a lot of seats where you didn't have incumbents running. In a typical election cycle, out of 435 House seats, U.S. House seats, there will maybe be 20 where an incumbent is not running for re-election and you have an open seat. Um, and so you had an unusually high number of open seats in 1992 for a couple of reasons. I think there, you know, again, typically you have about 20 in a given election cycle. I think in 92, there were 60 some for a whole host of reasons. There was a big check writing scandal. So most people don't know this, but the U.S. Congress has its own bank where members of Congress, you know, ha can have an account and write checks to cover expenses. And there were many, many House members who wrote hundreds of checks that bounced and there were no repercussions for this. Basically, they could just write as many bad checks as they wanted. And this became public. And there were some members who had written many, 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 some of them hundreds of bad checks. And so they decided not to run again because they knew they would lose. This was also the, le the last year you could cash out your campaign war chest. So prior to 1992, if you had money left over from your campaign, 
you could cash it out and go to the Bahamas or, you know, buy a new house or do whatever you wanted to do with it. In 1992, there was some campaign finance reform passed that made that illegal. So if you wanted to retire and you had money left in your campaign account, you couldn't just cash it out to your personal account. You can give it to other candidates. You can give it to charity. You can give it back to the people who gave it to you, but you can't cash it out and put it in your own personal account. So 1992 was the last year. So a lot of old timer uh, incumbents decided, hey, I'm going to cash out while I can. Um, and so we saw a high number of open seats. But also the political environment was really great for women. The issues on everyone's mind were education and health care. And female candidates, especially back in the 90s, were perceived as better than men on these particular issues. Also, women were really motivated. You have to remember that back in 1991, we had the Clarence Thomas hearings um, with Anita Hill accusing him of sexual harassment and women watching the televised uh, Judiciary Committee hearings and just becoming outraged. Um, and so women were really motivated to run. And so the women, the number of women in the U.S. House doubled um, and the women in the U.S. Senate tripled, now, which sounds great, but it went from two to six. But still, I mean, it was a substantial increase. And it was mostly due to more Democratic women getting elected. Now, there were some sort of mini years of the woman in 2006 and a couple of other election cycles. But the next really big one was 2018. And what's so remarkable is very similar conditions to, to 1992. Again, high number of open seats. There were about 40 open seats instead of the normal 20. And a lot of those open seats were due to sexual harassment scandals for incumbents, um, a lot of them being accused by their congressional staffers and other women. Um, so they decide to retire and get out rather than face reelection. Uh, again, we had a political environment that was pretty good for women in terms of the issues that were on the agenda. And again, women were motivated. You had the Kavanaugh hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee. You have the Women's March in January of 2017. And so we saw records smashed in terms of the number of winning, women running and winning. I mean, we're talking about huge increases over previous records. But what was interesting about 2018, again, like 1992, it was almost entirely due to more Democratic women running and winning. 2020 is interesting. To me, this is like the stealth year of the woman. We smashed all the records that we set in 2018, but it got very little media coverage. Like nobody was really paying attention. You know, 2020 was unique for a whole host of reasons. Um, but everybody, I think, was so focused on the presidential race that nobody was really paying attention to what was happening with women candidates. And again, we saw record numbers, even higher than 2018, um, for women running and women winning. But what's fascinating about 2020, you know, 92 and 2018 were mostly Democratic women seeing running and succeeding and winning. But in 2020, it was really Republicans, Republican women, who we saw a huge increase in uh, those women running and winning. And so this was a big story that was overlooked in 2020. And then if we take it down to the level of Ohio, you know, when we look at 92 and 2018 and 2020, you just don't see this happening at the state level here in Ohio like you did in other states. We did see increases in the number of women running for U.S. House, but again, because of gerrymandering, they weren't able to win. 
And we didn't see a big spike in the number of women running at the state level either. But, you know, the point is that things can change quickly. You know, I mean, I think that's the lesson from 92 and 2018 and 2020 is that things can change in one or two election cycles. You can see really big changes happen. Finally, people often ask the question why we place such great emphasis on having a woman in office. In 1994, Geraldine Ferraro, she was the first woman named to be vice president on a major ticket for a major party. Now we have Kamala Harris, who is getting ready to be sworn in. And currently, women make up 51% of Ohio's population, but just 27% of Ohio's legislature. Does Ohio need to push for more women in public office? You know, I mean, I think that's a great question because people all say, well, what difference does it make? Does it really matter, you know, that we have more men than women in office? And I think that's a totally legitimate question. For me, there's a couple ways of looking at this. First is just fairness. Women are half the population, as you pointed out. So just out of fairness, we should have half the power. Um, But beyond that, there's tons of research that shows that more diverse teams make better decisions. There's tons of research on Fortune 500 companies that show that more diverse workforces, more diverse boards make for much more, make for a better company. You get a company that's more creative. You get a company that's more productive. You get a company that's more profitable. These things affect the bottom line at these businesses. You get much better outcomes the more different kinds of people you have at the table, whether it's women, people of color, younger people, older people. People bring their different perspectives and experience and you get a better product. And research on state legislatures shows the same things happen when you look at legislators. Research on women in state legislatures and in Congress shows that women bring a different agenda with them. Now, if you compare, I've done some research when you compare, when you just look at the voting records of men and women in a state legislature or in Congress, when you just look at their votes, you don't see a whole lot of differences. Women who are Democrats have very similar voting records to men who are Democrats in the U.S. House and in state legislatures. You know, women who are Republicans have very similar voting records to Republican men in these institutions. And so you can look at the votes and say, it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman in the office because they all vote the same because party is the most important. However, Women bring a different agenda. They have different priorities. And it's not that men don't care. They just tend not to think of them or make them a priority. A really famous example I can give you is after the first year of the woman in 1992, the very first bill that President Clinton signed in 1993 was the Family and Medical Leave Act. Now, this bill had been tossed around Congress for decades, but it took an influx of women to get it done because they said, this is a priority. And yeah, eventually maybe it would have happened, but it happened a lot quicker because there were women who said, this is important to us. We need to do this. It's not just good for women. It's good for everybody. So the bottom line is when you include women and more people of color and more young people and fewer lawyers, you know, people who are not sort of the standard member of Congress, you get better decision making. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. How might we have more representation to impact the state going forward in terms of female representation? Yeah. So how do we get more women? All right. You know what? Here's the thing. It's actually very simple. You ask them to run. Yes. <laughs> it's literally that simple. Um, there's great research that shows that, you know, men just kind of wake up and decide, I'm going to run for office. 
Donald Trump, great example of this. I mean, and that's, I guess, one of the great things about, you know, the United States of America is literally anybody can be president. And But women don't do that. Women hem and haw. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, I think we're our, our own worst enemies. We think, oh, I'm not qualified. Oh, I can't do this. I'm, you know, responsible for bringing up my kids. I'm responsible for all the housework. How in the world am I going to have time to run for office? And so women have to think about it a lot longer. And we know that you have to ask women sometimes multiple times before they will step up. And a lot of times it's because they don't feel qualified. You can put two resumes side by side, one of a man's and one of a woman's, and they can be identical. And you can ask the man, do you think you're qualified to run for office? And he'll say, sure. And you'll ask the woman if she said, well, no, not really. You know, I raised, you know, thousands of dollars for my school's kid, but you know, what does that have to do with running for public office? It's like, it has everything to do with public office. And so women don't see the skills that they have as applicable when in fact they are. And so just asking women, we know from studies of party leaders and surveys that, you know, women just don't get asked nearly as often as men do. So it can just literally be something as simple as asking a really talented woman that you know and telling her that she should run for office. This has been a wonderful conversation, Barbara, and I just have one more thing. This is not a question, more of a statement. Just tell a young lady that might be listening what she should do to get into that political mix and run for office. Yeah, I mean, what I think is really important is being your authentic self. You know, especially I'm, what I, I work with college students, obviously, as a professor, and what I love and inspires me every day is how they're so engaged and there's issues that they love. And so, you know, even at a young age, you can have an impact, even if you're not running for office, just get involved in an issue that you care about. It could be the environment, it could be education, it could be pets, it could be, you know, whatever. Um, and it might not even see political at first. And so, you you know, I have a lot of students who are very actively involved in sports. That's very political these days. You know, funding for sports is super important. Um, and so any kind of leadership experience you can get on a sports team or in any kind of volunteer work, that's how you launch a political career. You, you know, devote yourself to something that you really love and the rest will fall into place. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. Just get involved. Thank you. Breaking the Political Glass Ceiling, Women in Congressional Elections. That's the publication. Barbara Palmer is the author and the guru on breaking that glass ceiling that so many women need to continue to shatter. We want to thank you so very much for appearing on this program. This has been a wonderful podcast, Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters. We know why it matters because we've got to shatter that glass ceiling. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters has been made possible by a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, which is being administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Ohio Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. To hear additional stories in this series, visit www.ohiohumanities.org.